Good evening, everybody. Venerable Chujin is traveling in Australia and Indonesia, so tonight we're going to do a little bit of a review on the easy path. So we'll begin as we have been doing since the start. We'll do some breathing meditation and then the uh, abbreviated recitations, and then I'll lead a little visualization, and then we'll go from there. Let's bring your attention to your breath. Letting go of the day, whatever troubles or concerns or achievements that you've managed today, just let them go and bring your attention fully, presently to your breath. And then imagine in the space in front of you, Guru Buddha, the way that we've been imagining and visualizing him over these past months. Really get a sense of the presence of the Buddha in the space in front of you. you're surrounded by all living beings throughout infinite space. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create, by engaging in generosity, and the other far-reaching practices, may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create, by engaging in generosity, and the other far-reaching practices, may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create, by engaging in generosity, and the other far-reaching practices, may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient May all sentient beings have happiness and its causes. 
May all sentient beings be free of suffering and its causes. May all sentient beings not be separated from sorrowless bliss. May all sentient beings abide in equanimity, free of bias, attachment, and anger. Reverently I prostrate with my body, speech, and mind, and present clouds of every type of offering, actual and mentally transformed. I confess all my destructive actions accumulated since beginningless time, and rejoice in the virtues of all holy and ordinary beings. Please remain until cyclic existence ends, and turn the wheel of Dharma for sentient beings. I dedicate all the virtues of myself and others to the Great Awakening. This ground anointed with perfume, flowers strewn Mount Meru, Objects of attachment, aversion, ignorance, friends, enemies, and strangers, my body, wealth, and enjoyments, I offer these without any sense of loss. Please accept them with pleasure and inspire me and others to be free from the three poisonous attitudes. Glorious and precious Rukuru, Sit upon the lotus and moon seat on my crown, guiding me with your great kindness. Bestow upon me the attainments of your body, speech, and mind. The eyes from whom the vast scriptures are seen, supreme doors for the fortunate who would cross over to spiritual freedom, illuminators whose wise means vibrate with compassion. To the entire line of spiritual mentors I make request. Then imagine as we're doing the Buddha's mantra that much light flows from him down through the crown of your head, filling you with light, purifying any obstacles to your practice, blessing and inspiring your mind to be able to generate the causes and conditions for the realizations of the path. Tayata ho muni muni maha muni soha Tayata ho muni muni maha muni soha Tayata ho muni muni maha muni soha Tayata Tayata ho muni muni 
Please inspire us that in our minds and in the minds of all sentient beings may arise a superior realization of equanimity, free of bias, attachment, and anger towards all sentient beings, of the recognition of them as our mothers, recollection of their kindness, the wish to repay it, love, compassion, and bodhicitta. In response to your requesting the Guru Buddha, five colored light and nectar stream from all parts of his body into you through the crown of your head. It absorbs into your mind and body and those of all sentient beings, purifying all negativities, obscurations accumulated since beginningless time, and especially purifying all illnesses, interferences, negativities, and obscurations that interfere with the cultivation of equanimity, free of bias, attachment, and anger, and so forth. All the other bodhicitta meditations. Your body becomes translucent, the nature of light. All your good qualities, lifespan, merit, and so forth expand and increase. Think in particular that a superior realization of equanimity, free of bias, attachment, anger towards all sentient beings has arisen in your mind stream and in the mind stream of others. So whenever Venerable's away, we take an opportunity to do a little bit of review on the teachings that she's given in hopes that it can either clarify them, deepen them, um, and help us to understand them better. So in the past reviews that we've done um, on the easy path, we've done some reviews on the practices in common with the initial scope of being, someone who wants to practice to attain a fortunate rebirth. We've also reviewed the practices of someone of the middle scope who wants to attain liberation from samsara and how they work together. And so tonight we're going to begin, because um, she's going to be away for a few weeks, so we're going to be able to do a review um, on the um, stages of the path of the great beings, how to develop bodhicitta and how to practice the bodhisattva path, particularly the six far-reaching practices. And uh, tonight we'll start with equanimity, which is kind of the basis for both of the ways in which we can generate bodhicitta, either the seven-point instruction of cause and effect, which, interesting uh, enough, is in the little reflection that we did, um, which said that may all sentient beings 
uh, in their minds arise a superior realization of equanimity. Okay, there's equanimity, free of bias, attachment, and anger towards all sentient beings. The recognition of them as our mothers. The recognition of their kindness. The wish to repay it. Love, compassion, bodhicitta. So the seven-point cause and effect uh, instruction on cause and effect is in that little paragraph right there. So we're going to start with equanimity tonight. And... Um, and then over the course of the next few weeks, um, we'll sort of review a few of those stages, um, points for the first three weeks, and then the last week we'll do equalizing, exchanging self and others. Just kind of a little review. And so one of the things that Venerable, when she first started this, and she spent two weeks on equanimity. I mean, she really felt that it was quite important. And, um, and what she said is that, that there's a reason for the order of how the Lamrim presents itself with the initial scope, the middle scope, and the great scope. Because she says, we may wonder sometimes is if we're very interested in developing all of these really virtuous qualities like joyous effort and ethical conduct and compassion and love, um, why do we have to wait until now to do that? Why don't we cultivate those qualities in the beginning of the path so we sort of have them in our toolbox as we go along? Why do we have to go through the initial scope where we've got to talk about death, we've got to talk about impermanence, we've got to talk about karma? And then we go and just, you know, just if that doesn't kind of get us sort of paying attention, then in the middle scope we talk about suffering and more suffering and afflictions and the cause of suffering. She said, why do we have to wait until the end to the, um, to the advanced scope to get all the good stuff like love and compassion and kindness and things like that? And she said, basically, it's because bodhicitta, which is the motivation to become awakened in order to benefit all sentient beings, um, is a really profound motivation. And in order to generate that aspiration, we need to see the kindness of all sentient beings, and we also need to see their suffering, that they are bound in samsara, that the dukkha of samsara is what they basically exist in, life after life after life. And to be able to see that kindness and to see the unsatisfactory conditions of their lives, we have to, and also, and as a result of that, really want to somehow be able to free them or guide them to be able to free themselves from the, the suffering of dukkha, is that we have to understand our own unsatisfactoriness, our own dukkha, and we want to ourselves be free of it. We have to start with our own situation. Because she says, for many times, you know, a lot of times we just kind of want to jump over this part. We just want to get to the love. We just want to get to the compassion. Because when we look at the world, we kind of go, God, you know, sentient beings are suffering. It's just heart-wrenching to see what they're doing. Why can't we just get out there and just start working to, to benefit and to save them and to get on with that? Why do we have to go through these first two initial scopes? And she said, basically, it's because we have a hard time looking at our own minds and seeing our own dukkha, seeing our own messy, uncontrolled minds that we don't want to look at it. And so I was kind of thinking about this a little bit. I said, why do we, you know, why do we think that way? Why do we want to jump over looking at our own suffering? So why do we want to go right to the good stuff? What would be some of the, besides the fact that, you know, suffering is awful, terrible, and ugly, what, why do we want to bypass that? A lot of times we don't want to admit it to ourselves. That, that we're suffering. That we're suffering. There's a lot of pride. I don't have problems. Other people do. <laughs> and I'm going to go help them. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Suffering hurts. Suffering hurts, and I don't want to admit to that. And if I just don't pay attention to it and just get on with having love and compassion and saving the world, that's that's just fine. I, I can do that. I can do that. I think also it's a sense of habituation, looking always outside first before inside. That's very strong in us. Yeah, yeah. I really wanting to uh, take care of the world. And the coaching to be optimistic. I mean, to be optimistic, you're not going to talk about suffering. Especially your own. Especially if we're responsible for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was kind of curious on why we bypass. Maybe we have to fix the world so that they can be nicer to us. That's true. And then we won't have any suffering. Then we won't have to deal with it. Right. We just fix everyone else. Yeah. We can't fix samsara. Yeah, but there's a reason why sometimes we get a little apprehensive about looking at our own suffering. So those are some of the reasons I think many of us might conjure up. However, if we're going to develop compassion, bodhicitta, for the predicament of all beings and wanting them to be free, we have to understand our own internal workings, which is to mean to understand the four truths of the noble aryas, to be able to understand dukkha, the cause of it, the fact that it can be eliminated, and then the path to follow. We have to have that own deep understanding in our own lives, our own experience. And if we're going to do that and generate the determination to be free, we first have to wish for a good rebirth, because I don't know about you, but chances of me taking care of that and freeing myself from samsara is not going to happen in this life. So we really need to generate the causes and conditions for many, many rebirths, which is why then we, we start off with the practices common to the initial scope, which is understanding karma, precious human life, death and impermanence. And we won't be able to liberate ourselves if we don't have those strings of precious human lives as well. And then we have to understand suffering and its causes, all the realms, so we can say, I don't want to be reborn. I don't want to be reborn in a human life. I don't want to be reborn in an animal life. I don't want to be reborn in samsara at all. All right, so that's why the middle scope is so important to really look dukkha straight in the face and really to understand the cause of dukkha, the ignorance, the afflictions that arise due to it. So to use those fortunate rebirths to gain liberation from samsara. So that's why it's why the, the good stuff, quote, good stuff, is at the end, because we really want to be able to, to fully understand the precious human life that we have, to garner a whole bunch of rebirths in order to liberate ourselves. And then from that, to see then that other beings are suffering just like we have, and to wish to liberate them as well. We've got to have the string of rebirths to be able to do that. And also I believe that to be able to help others, um, if we haven't touched that on suffering, we don't have the strength to do it. We panic, it's overwhelming, we can't hold it. We can't hold the suffering. Yeah. But when we really have went into it, then that love burst out by itself and then... Yeah. So what Venerable Yeshi is saying, unless we really come to terms with the level of our own suffering and bring compassion and really be able to deal with that, we're going to just fall into personal distress. We're not going to be able to look at the suffering of the world. So looking at our own suffering in a very intimate, honest way and working with it and eliminating it from our own minds gives us a kind of compassion, a kind of 
open-heartedness and a, a fearlessness to be able to then look at the suffering of the world and to be able to do something about that skillfully rather than just trying to fix it or, or put a Band-Aid on it or you know, wish it that it goes away. Yeah, I think it's very profound. Our suffering is very... And that's what the, the determination to be free, the definition of a renunciation is, to have profound compassion for oneself, for one's own situation, for one's own dukkha. And then from that to really wish to be free of it. Okay. Before, right? Because love and compassion might mean to fix, to control, to take responsibility for things that we can't take responsibility for. So that's why the reason that the law room is sort of set up in this order. We have to intensely understand our own samsara and want to be free of it before we can ever wish anybody else to be free of it. And then, as uh, and from that, we can then, once we free ourselves, and then want it for others, then as we go into this, the the stages of the great being practice, then we know that one of the obstacles for that happening, for wishing others to also be free, is to overcoming the self-centered mind that sees us as more important, sees our happiness as being the the precedent to make sure that that is attained first, and that our that our suffering is simply worse and more terrible than everybody else's. So we've got to overcome that, which is why when we get into the, 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 uh, the advanced great beings practices, then we start seeing the self-centered thought for what it is. And that's where we start getting into uh, the seven-point instructional cause and effect and equalize and exchange self and others, which just totally addresses the self-centered thought. Okay. And that there's no way to generate the wonderful qualities that we want in our minds for any sustainable time unless we work on these preoccupations with self. So then we're going to be running up into the self-centered thought. And that's what we're going to address in the next few weeks. Okay, so we have two ways to generate bodhicitta. Like I said earlier, the seven-point instruction on cause and effect and equalize and exchanging self and others. And both of them are preceded by equanimity. It is so important. I mean, we don't have a lot of it now. I kind of see mine as maybe feeble, feeble equanimity. And that not only do we not have equanimity in regards to, you know, how we see people, is but we also don't have equanimity in the rest of our lives. I mean, how much equanimity do we have about our jobs? How much equanimity do we have about the environments that we live in? How much equanimity do we have about our experience, our stuff, the food that we eat, our homes? We don't have any equanimity. It's not just around equanimity towards sentient beings. We've got yo-yo minds and roller coaster minds in regards to just about anything in samsara that pull us around, up and down, that really bring our emotions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
And there is no equanimity anywhere. So we're talking about a, a, a lack of equanimity across the board in samsara, not just about our relationships to sentient beings, which is what we're going to focus on now. But, but Venerable put it in a much bigger context. She said, well, there isn't any much equanimity in our lives, generally speaking. And that um, up and down like roller coasters, so one minute crashing and burning to the ground, the next minute excited and happy, the next minute depressed and frustrated, and one of our practices here at the Abbey is to cultivate contentment. That's part of the monastic mind training that we are trying to develop, not having any preferences and opinions. My job is to work on this, but without equanimity we can just forget it. And it's a really difficult practice, is to cultivate contentment. Our minds are so difficult. We believe that on any given day, the way we see things is true. One day the world is great, the next day the world is awful, and we say that's the way it is. We are absolutely hoodwinked by the self-centered thought that even all this stuff that's transitory and impermanent, that doesn't last, that none of it goes with us when we die, we react like anything, no matter how small it is, means everything. It's like blowing everything out of proportion. And we just get ourselves into all sorts of trouble And so one of the things that Venerable says in her, her uh, commentary is that even at a very fundamental basic ground, equanimity is helpful for leveling out our minds to be somewhat calm, peaceful, receptive, content. And it's not only good for the people who have to live with us and the people who have to deal with us, but it's really helpful for our own minds. Because what happens in relationship to other sentient beings, what she says is, you know, we don't know where other people are going to be when we meet them. What kind of mood are they going to be? You know, when we meet our friends, are they going to smile at us or are they going to bark at us? We don't know. And if we don't have some level of equanimity in our own minds and relationship to our own lives, we're continually thrown off by the way the other people in our lives, what moves they're in, how they're feeling, what kind of afflictions they're under, or what kind of emotions are running. So having equanimity in our lives just across the board, as far as preferences and opinions, what's working, what's not working, actually gives us some sort of protection and some sort of open-hearted, equal-caring concern. So if some, one of our friends comes to us and is just all over the place, we're not going to get thrown into all over the place because we've got some sense of levelness, we've got some sense of equanimity in our own minds. So it's very, very important. And the text really goes into how to develop equanimity. And, the, and what's very interesting is Venerable said that, um, oh, I keep forgetting what his name, wonderful, Losan Shoki Gelsen, is that most of the, the little reflections and requests for blessings prior to this part of the text were very, very short. But when he got to equanimity, he literally unpacked this teaching. And so she, what she did is, and I'm going to do it tonight, is we're going to go through the way in which he requests that we meditate on equanimity. He unpacked it. He puts it out step by step by step. There's like 12 different steps on how to cultivate this with friend, enemy, stranger, then with both enemy and stranger, and then with all sentient beings. And, and she said he's telling us something. He's telling us that this particular state of mind is very, very important. 
So that's what we're going to do, because on the two weeks that Venerable taught this, she spent a large portion of the evening leading these meditations. So that's what we're going to do. This is a beautiful meditation. It's got a little bit of a different perspective than the one that we're familiar with about seeing why do we have friends in our lives, you know, what do they do, why do we have people that we call enemy, all about me, which we may be able to do tonight too. But this one has a little bit of a different perspective on it. And maybe we can share a little bit after we finish it. But it's a really beautiful meditation. So I'm going to leave that because I think it's, it's clarifying and it really helps us to, to deepen our understanding of why this particular quality is so important. All right, so we're going to imagine the Guru Buddha on the crown of our heads. So while meditating with the Buddha on your head, visualize clearly before you a neutral sentient being, one who has neither helped you nor harmed you. Really bring them to mind. And then since he or she wants to be happy and does not want to suffer, may I develop equanimity towards her or him, free of bias, attachment, and anger, without at times feeling close to her and helping her, and at other times feeling distant and harming her. Guru Buddha, please inspire me to be able to do so. to really think about this truth of this neutral person. Her whole life is about this. Wanting to be happy, not wanting to suffer. Her whole life is propelled by this wish. And then imagine that the light comes into you from the boot on the crown of your head, bringing you the realizations of equanimity and removing all obstacles to that happening. So really imagine the light and nectar of the boot on the crown of your head just streaming through, helping to bring this realization into your mind. And then once you've leveled your feelings for this neutral sentient being, visualize clearly before you someone that you find appealing, someone you're really attracted or attached to, somebody whose company you enjoy being, <coughs> to whom there is some partiality. Imagine them in your mind very clearly. 
This could be not just a person, it could be a sentient being, it could be a pet. And then you think to yourself, it is out of attachment that I lack equanimity for this person. In the past, it was due to attachment for attractive things that I was born in samsara. Really take that in. There's this beautiful person I want to be with, and I remember that due to attachment to attractive things or a person like this, I have been bound in cyclic existence again and again. How does that sentence impact you? The whole thought that this attachment creates the cause and conditions for us to be trapped in cyclic existence. And then once you have leveled your feelings for this person, visualize clearly before you someone you find unappealing. 
someone who you find threatening, unpleasant, hostile, that you really don't want to be anywhere around. Bring them to mind, clearly. And then we think, my lack of equanimity for this person comes from my considering them to be utterly hostile. Which then makes me angry with them. If I do not level my feelings, I will never be able to generate bodhicitta. Also helpful to think that my animosity towards this person has also been the cause for my cycling in samsara. How do those two thoughts affect your aversion to this person? You will not be able to generate bodhicitta and you are bound in cyclic existence due to, due to this anger, this enemy thinking in regards to this person.
Then once you've leveraged your feeling for this person, visualize clearly before you someone that you find very attractive, someone you're attached to, feel close to, like your mother or your best friend, and then someone you find very hostile and threatening, unappealing, like an enemy. And put them side by side. They can be different than the other ones you had in the previous category, a friend or enemy. And then think from their side they are equal in their desire for happiness and their wish to avoid suffering. From my side, since beginningless time and samsara, the one I now hold dear has been my worst enemy countless times. So try imagine that. And since beginningless time and samsara, the one that I now consider an enemy has also cared for me lovingly innumerable times. To whom should I be attached? With whom should I be angry? develop equanimity towards them free of bias, attachment, and anger. Guru Buddha, please inspire me to be able to do so. Imagine the Guru Buddha on the crown of your head. Imagine this beautiful light and nectar streaming from him into all parts of your body and mind, helping to purify all the interferences and obstructions that interfere with the cultivation of equanimity. Not only in yourself, but in the minds of all sentient beings.
And then once you have leveled your feelings towards them, meditate to level your feelings towards all sentient beings. Just use, really let your imagination go and imagine all the different realms. The God realm, everybody's all blissed out, enjoying the results of virtue in their previous lives by having a life of such incredible pleasure. The demigods continually jealous of the gods, struggling for power, struggling to have that. All the humans, all seven plus billion of us. All the animals, from the tiniest, tiniest to the biggest, biggest. Struggling not to be eaten. Caring for their young. Eating each other. And then the hungry ghost, searching, searching, searching. Always hungry, always craving, never fulfilled. The deep mental and physical suffering. Never being satisfied. Wandering aimlessly. Looking for soiled food and spit. And the hell beings just in all sorts of intense physical and mental suffering. The hottest of the hot, the frozen of the frozen hells. They can't even think straight. We think all sentient beings from their side are equal in their desire for happiness and their wish to avoid dukkha. All the realms, as limitless as it is. From my side, since all sentient beings are my friends, have been, are, and will be, may I avoid splitting them into two groups holding them dear and helping them, and feeling distant from others and harming them. And instead may I develop equanimity for each and every one of them. Guru Buddha, please inspire me to be able to do this.
then visualize once again the light and nectar coming from the Buddha on the crown of your head. Purifying your bias of putting them in these two categories. And that is a pure realization of equanimity has arisen in your mind and the mind of others. There's something about that meditation. I mean, it's just so beautiful. And one of the things I was thinking about is that as we go through each one of those, it's like totally coming from our side. It's like each one of those people, the friend, the enemy, the neutral person, they just want to be happy and not suffer. And then there's all this projecting. There's all this attachment. There's all this projecting good qualities they don't have or exaggerating the ones they do have. All the aversion, perceiving them as having these negative qualities or you know, making up ones they don't even have. I mean, there's all this stuff that he's showing us that's coming from our side, and there they are just doing the best they can to be happy and not suffer. And so we're creating the causes to be reborn in psychic existence over and over again. I mean, there's this real tenderness. There's real, this kind of... Gosh, folks, <laughs> this is what we're doing since the beginning of the time. And we're all just trying to, to, I mean, our whole life is like propelled by wanting to be happy and not suffer. Yet we're creating the causes for misery. It's just so profoundly clear in this meditation, at least for me it is. Anybody and have any other feelings about this? I mean, they, there was a lot of discussion on this when it came through a few months ago. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But what's the feeling that people, when you get go through all of that and you hear what he's trying to point out about the causes for cyclic existence and that they're continually just coming from the side of equal in their desire for happiness and their wish to avoid suffering, what comes up for people? What's the, what's the, like the, the first kind of, or the thing that keeps coming up in, in the mind? Is there some resistance? Is there some kind of vulnerability or it was really difficult for me to see my mother as an enemy in a previous life. I stuck on that and couldn't 
I could not imagine yeah. her as mm. someone who would harm me. Yeah. But but the wisdom of, if anything, just as a point of view is to say, if we do indeed believe in beginningless time that they've all been our friend, enemy, and stranger. Because then what it does is it brings mom into the level playing field of being a sentient being like everybody else who's been in relationship to us since being beginningless. I mean, it's really kind of pushing that button about mm-hmm. how special is this person in this life. But it's interesting because it's easier for me to go from enemy in this life to mother in previous lives. <laughs> than to go do that in meditation yeah. more often. But to go from mom in this life to being someone who will you know, mm-hmm. cut your throat right. is hard to do. Someone online says it was so clear that the people were the problem. It was my reactions to them that are the problem. Someone else also says it's very clear to me how the lack of equanimity is a major cause of us staying bound in samsara from doing this meditation. So then, because this happens to be difficult for a lot of us. Venerable then goes on to talk about a few things that help to clarify any misconceptions we might have about what equanimity is. Which is, she says that equanimity doesn't mean that we act the same towards everybody, but that we feel the same way towards them. Because the reality of the situation is, is that we have different relationships, we have different societal roles, there are different ages, there are different cultures, and that she goes to the very familiar analogy is that we can invite a, a friend to our home, but we would invite a stranger. We relate to a child much differently than we relate to a 50-year-old, our boss versus our spouse. I mean, there are different relationships that we have. It's not like we turn our whole life upside down to have equanimity. It's in a total internal mental attitude that regards each one of them, irregardless of what the relationship is to us, with an open-hearted, equal concern them to be happy and not suffer. Because I think we get nervous because we think that to have equanimity we either have to stop having a life because if we can't be attached and we can't have enemies then we're somewhere in there of apathy and indifference and I don't care. It's like, you know, just give it up. Just stop living, stop breathing, stop thinking, stop feeling. Because because equanimity sounds like people can misunderstand as being indifference or apathy. So that's one of the places that we get a little nervous about. Or that we have to totally recreate our, our lives if we want equanimity. Like we're going to have to give up everything and start over because we're so attached and we're so averse. So we've got to like start over and, and do it differently. And what he says, it's our state of mind, our internal attitude that changes. And as a result, many times, changes externally happen. But it's not about changing the external relationships and the external situations. It's about turning and changing the internal attitude and the internal thinking about how we regard the people and the things in our life. And that she says it's also very important that we we also cultivate this internal attitude inside to animals and insects as well. And this can take some doing, switching to our our thinking about insects and animals because there's a number of them for the past thousands of years who have been in the enemy category from the get-go. 
I mean, cockroaches are in the enemy category. Mosquitoes are in the enemy category. Snakes are in the enemy category. Ticks, fleas. I mean, there's, there's creatures that just, humans just put them in that category. They're for extermination, they're for terminating, you know. And that, um, I mean, we've got all sorts of those little critters that you would regard enemies, like yellow jackets and ticks and mosquitoes here. But to have some kind of equanimity towards them. But at the same time, we act appropriately to take care that we don't get harmed, that other people don't get harmed around here. We've got to remove nests and take the, you know, the mice away and the mosquitoes. We use repellent, but it's to respect them as, as close as we would a family member, which is a pretty amazing concept to have the same equal open-hearted concern for a tick as we have for our sister. I mean, that's a little bit of a far-reaching thought, but that's what equanimity is applying. It's not like we'd stop, start inviting all the mosquitoes and the ticks and the cockroaches and rats into our house, but we see them with <laughs> equal concern, which some people have them already, so it's like, I mean, what to do? So it's not, because that's one of the things is that I've run into, you know, sharing equanimity, is that people really think that they have to, they just have to start, like, not dealing with things realistically. Equanimity means I just don't take care of business. It's not that we don't take care of business, it's that it's our attitude when we have to deal with them, when we have to have a relationship with them that makes all the difference in the world. Okay. And then she went then she kind of zoomed in on attachment. And it kind of pulls us around by the nose. Doing anything for those that we're attached to, even doing things that don't benefit them in the long term. We play the game because we don't want them to dislike us, we don't want them to be angry with us, we don't want to rock the boat. So those people in our world that we're really attached to, we end up not really being of benefit. So she's saying equanimity helps us not to get roped in by our own attachment in relationship to the people that we really care about. We lose our wisdom due to attachment because we feel responsible for somebody else's happiness, we also put it upon ourselves that we somehow perceive ourselves as being indispensable and we're caring for them, although sometimes it looks like we're more like trying to fix them and control them. So attachment really sort of pollutes the relationship. And what she says is what happens sometimes is that because it's, it be, the relationship with the attachment becomes so dysfunctional is that the person that really, that we want to help that's not doing well, because we just override and take care of them and take away the responsibility for their own lives off of their shoulders, is that she says that then there's no, there's no incentive to change. And there's somebody that um, I know who recently shared with me that she's having this very same kind of struggle and that there's a member of her family that has some serious, is an alcoholic, and it was very, very, has been very, very ill for the past two years. And because of his difficulty, I mean, almost close to death on numerous occasions, and because of his difficulty, the larger family unit doesn't really know how to deal with him. So out of the kindness of her heart, because she's got this huge heart, she took him in, based temporarily to kind of get him back on his feet, get him stabilized. And part of the negotiating was that he'd give up drinking. Well, she's paying for his food, she's paying for his rent, she sees bottles around the house, so she knows he hasn't given up drinking. So now not only is she working a very, very long, long hours at work, but her health is starting to become affected because she's taking care of this person who's continually drinking, still not feeling well, still having health issues. 
but doesn't have any incentive to change because she's basically taking care of everything. So now she's got a little bit of resentment going besides really being upset about my health is going, I'm working my butt off, and now I'm getting really, really angry. You know, so this is what happens sometimes when attached, we love people so much, but we're also attached. We want to, we want to fix them. We want to save them. We want them to do, do things that maybe they don't want to do. And then we take care of all the exterior circumstances, which then puts them right in, well, gosh, I got a roof over my head. I got somebody taking care of my medical, medical expenses. I don't need to change. I'm doing just fine. So attachment sometimes puts us in these situations where we're not really being of help. So we talked a little bit about you know some ideas that she could do to sort of take care of her own mind, take care of her own life, and you know some realistic things on how to take care of this relationship. But you could see that it was the attachment that was just driving this. And then she got herself boxed herself into a corner. I really couldn't. What am I going to do here? I mean, you know, nobody wants him. I feel obligated. Mm -hmm. All right. So it's hard to differentiate having concern and respect for others and at the same time giving them the space to go what they to go through what they need to go through to, if they got to hit the wall they hit the wall to just give them space you know because we get we get confused on what that care and respect is and what fixing and and taking on responsibility that we really need to take on and then I think that um, when we did this a few months ago venerable Damcho, uh said and it was this is very very interesting she said there it's been said that the buddha never imposed his views on anybody he never tried to fix anybody he never tried to save anybody he just said what he knew said you know this is what i believe this was my experience and he basically gave people the freedom to accept or not accept what it was that he was offering I mean, even in even the the matted hair ascetics who would stand out there in the sun for months at a time and not bathe and walk on nails and stand out in the heat and you know starve themselves. He never went up to them and said, "Guys, you're just being stupid. You know why don't you do this? I, I have it all figured out. Just follow me, and you can get what you need. You can have your aspirations fulfilled." He never imposed his views, even on people who he knew was going were going in the wrong direction. But we haven't quite figured that out yet. We like to give advice, even when it hasn't been asked for. And because of our attachment, we're continually imposing what people need to do to save themselves and take care of themselves and be better people. And that's what, where equanimity really helps us. It helps us to encourage and guide people, but to give them space. And sometimes crash and burn is, is what, what giving space means. So it's a form of equanimity to be there, but to let people do what they have to do. We don't know what's best for them. This doesn't mean we walk away, but we don't interfere or try and control, fix, save, manipulate. So she wanted to be really clear because we, there's a tendency to fall into this equanimity means this, misunderstanding what it is, and then of course how do we deal with the attachment in our lives for the people that we really care about. And it generally, it's not just attachment. We have a whole bunch of love mixed in with our attachment, too. You know, it's not just 100% attachment. There's a lot of love and tenderness there, too. But it, it gets really complicated. So, um, so on the second week when, when Venerable uh, revisited equanimity, she then went back to the equanimity meditation that we have in the Lombrin. So I wanted to do this just very, very quickly just to go through the friend, enemy, and stranger, to see the self-centered thought, how it plays a huge part of not having equanimity in our, uh, in our lives. So I wanted to, and I've got just a few things to say about that, and then um, 
about the judgmental mind, and then we'll we'll end with that. Okay, can we do a real quick little friend, enemy, stranger? Once again, we want to really focus on what's the criteria? What? How do we? How do they get in those categories in the first place? Once again, piggybacking on what Losan Choki Geltsin said is that, you know, it's all coming from our side. All right, so first we want to bring to mind someone we're very attached to, someone we like to be with or very close to. Bring them very clearly to your mind's eye. then list some of the reasons why you're attached to that person. Why are they in the friend category? There's no right or wrong answer. Just kind of list off the top of your head some of the things that put them in the friend category. Some of their qualities, some of their behaviors. Why are they so dear? So you can put them off to the side a little bit. And then think about someone who's in that enemy or difficult person or being category. Why do you dislike them? Why are they hard to be with? And then think of someone who you would regard as a stranger. And this is a hard one because we project on even the neutral people, but do your best. Why are they in that category? It's kind of a, they're almost not in on the radar screen. You know?
And then what is the word that keeps coming up when you think about these three categories? Look at the me, I, my, and mine of those three. How they affect me. How they treat me. Try to imagine how would they appear if we could somehow see them free from, you know, take the filter of the self-centered thought, the I, me, my, and mine. If we could just take that away for a moment, how would they appear? Would we be able to see that they just want to be happy and not suffer? And they try to really make a determination to work on these three categories, to try to lower the filter of I, me, my, and mine that prevents us from really having equal open-hearted concern for them. Just make a determination to experiment with that. So just a few little points to summarize this me, 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 me. Um, is to really get this, that it's all coming from our side. That we believe that they are out there inherently, friend, enemy, and stranger. We don't believe that we create those categories. We believe they exist objectively from their own side without any filtering or coloring coming from our side. I mean, we've got that, like, as a reality in our crazy minds. And as a, as a result, we, we have this judgmental mind that evaluates everybody we encounter in terms of ourselves. 
everybody is judged on how they affect me, or if it's not on how they affect me, how do they affect somebody that I like? How do they affect somebody I don't like? So once again, even if it's in regards to other people, it's still in regards on how it affects me. And one of the things that Venerable said when she did the, um, the, the, the we did the retreat a few weeks ago on how to see yourself as you really are, um, she said that all day long we're spinning stories about me, who's helping me and who's harming me. And what's so amazing about this is that there are seven plus billion humans on this earth, not to mention the countless other living beings in the animal, fish, and insect world. And all we care about is just this one person. She said, just wrap your mind around that. It's just so illogical. It's so crazy to obsess about the happiness of just one being in the universe of countless beings. Does that sound like the cause of Buddhahood to you? <laughs> I mean, it's just scary. Because on one hand, we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. We want to have fulfilled, purposeful lives. And, and, and being, you know, Buddhist, we want to be awakened. We want to become Buddhists in order to benefit all sentient beings. We want to generate these amazing qualities but we can't be effective because we're so preoccupied. So, I mean, we, and that our actions are very, very ineffective in generating bodhicitta because of all of this tail spinning. For all the efforting that we put into putting people in the categories, all of our good actions seem to kind of go by the wayside. They're not effective. Because we're all day spinning stories about who's going to get who's going to get our bodhicitta today, who's going to get our love and compassion today, who's going to get our indifference today, who's going to get our hate today. And we just can't do it, and, I, and we want to be we want to we want to be fulfilled. We want to be have these incredible lives with great purpose, but we're just shooting ourselves in the foot by creating these categories. And then, of course, they change in the categories from friend to stranger to enemy to enemy to friend to stranger to stranger to enemy friend, all our lives. So anyway, so equanimity, if we want to develop the causes for bodhicitta in our minds, we have to level the field of sentient beings to see them all as wanting to be happy, not suffer regardless how they are in relationship to us. And to see the labeling of friend, enemy, stranger as one of the most powerful tools of the self-centered thought that bounds us to misconceptions that people exist and things exist from their own side, that this labeling by the self-centered thought gives a rise to afflictions which then create the negative karma that keeps us bound in samsara. It's just like one big snowball rolling down the hill, picking up speed. And so one of the last sentences I paraphrased a little bit in uh, Open-Hearted Life that Venerable did with Russell Coles, and she says, with equanimity we can really bring down, bring down the walls and the barbed wire, take away the pedestals, and whatever we put up that gets in the way of being truly authentic, open-hearted, curious, and caring about all beings equally. Equanimity then becomes a fertile field to develop love, compassion, gratitude for others, 
for their kindness, and eventually the awakening mind will grow from this fertile field. So she said, it's barbed wire, it's walls. I put in the pedestals because that's about attachment. So may we be able to, to cultivate this wonderful state because it's kind of like the platform. You're going to dive into this beautiful deep swimming pool and you've got to get up on the diving board first. And I think equanimity is the diving board. And if you want to really jump into that love, jump into, into seeing all sentient beings as having been our parents, we've got to get up on the high dive of equanimity and then jump off. All right, so let's just take a moment and then we'll dedicate. So let's think about equanimity. Let's think about somebody in our life who's a friend, somebody who's in our life as an enemy and a stranger. Let's see if we can level the playing field this week. And then next week we'll continue with the seven point instruction of cause and effect. <laughs> Keep your distance with Venerable Yeshi till she gets equanimity. Equanimity. She says, don't come too close until I practice equanimity. So I can practice. Oh, did I get it? Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful Tenzing Gyatso Chenrezig, may you stay until samsara ends.